Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. My guest today is Drew Holcomb of Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors. Their most recent album, Dragons, came out in 2019, and I caught up with Drew to talk to him about a lot of things, including being part of a huge family. He was one of 28 grandkids, and how he overcame a lot of loss early in his life to become one of Americana's most reliable artists. We talked about his writing style, his relationship with his wife Ellie, who was in his band at one point, and how his family has inspired him to make new music. We also talked about what he's been doing in quarantine and how he thinks about the business of music. After the interview, you'll hear Drew playing American Beauty, Family, and Dragons. And there's a Spotify playlist of this episode as well. If you like what we're doing here on Past, Present, Future Live, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to tell you one more time about Sunset Lake CBD, our awesome sponsor. I use their products every day, as I've told you, and it gives me a little bit of relaxation in this crazy world. Get 15% off your order when you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. Now here's my interview with Drew Holcomb. All right, I'm here with Drew Holcomb. How you doing, Drew? I'm good, man. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, there's a lot to talk about. You just put out some new music uh, this this month, which we want to chat about. But first, I have to start, as I always do, with going way back and asking you, do you have a first musical memory? Uh, yeah, my first musical memory is uh, the kindergarten talent show. I had this really low voice already as like a kid. And my mom convinced me to sing uh, Old Man River in the talent show. And I remember being nervous and but going up there and people people cheering for me and, you know, thinking, oh, that's not, not too bad. You know? <laughs> How old were you? <laughs> Five or six. Okay. And you grew up in Tennessee, right? I did. I grew up in Memphis and lived there until college, then went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and then moved back to Memphis uh, after college because uh, of a studio recording job that I got. Memphis is definitely home. It's where I learned to fall in love with music and first shows and all the things, you know. I understand you come from a pretty big family. Was there music around all the time? Was it a very musical family? Uh, yes and no. I mean, there weren't a lot of musicians, but there was a lot of like church music. Uh, my mom played the piano a little bit. You know, we'd have family gatherings and we'd do like hymn sings and stuff like that. So there was always music around. My dad, you know, as a, as a like high schooler in the early 70s and college student in the mid 70s had pretty good musical taste and so he you know he sort of shared a lot of that with us as his kids but you know i'd say we were like the normal music family not like we weren't like sit on the porch playing music which you know i hear about those families and i'm a little jealous but <laughs> uh, i think my my dad got me a guitar when i was in like the sixth grade really because he wished that he had played hmm. you know and so sort of a vicarious thing i think for for him I've talked to a lot of musicians who had the same experience, like their parents were kind of living through them, which I, which I understand. Well, I think a lot of, you know, their parents didn't want them playing music, you know, it's like kind of like that uh, long haired freaky people need not apply thing, you know. So yeah, I think he was sort of turning that switch on for me instead of turning it off like it probably had been for him. 
That's really cool. And was there a lot of music around? Like, was there a lot of music playing just kind of around the house? Yeah, I really think that most of that was like we, my dad loved to travel. So my parents would load us in this way, this conversion van, and, and we would take a lot of trips, you know. And you know, this is kind of before every car was outfitted with TVs for travel, you know. So we, uh, we listened to a lot of music driving down the road. My parents would love like oldies radio and dad loved Dylan. And uh, so there was always music around. But it wasn't really until I was in maybe like middle school during the sort of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Blind Melon era when I started to really sort of pick up my own taste and fall in love with music on my own. Do you remember any any album or song that like really got you in a way that hadn't before? Yeah, I remember we we were on this one of those road trips and I, we stopped and dad was like, all right, everybody can get a tape. This is back when we had Walkmans, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like everybody can get a tape from the little tower by the checkout, you know. And so I bought this Joe Cocker record. I can't remember the name of the record. But it had this cover of it. This is a Jimmy Webb song. I know that now, but I didn't know at the time. It's called The Moon's a Harsh Mistress. Okay. And I just remember here, it's like, it's kind of like this real, like, mellow piano ballad. And I just remember, like, playing that song on repeat and then rewinding it, playing it and playing and playing it again. And uh, yeah, just fell in love with it. And, and it was like, I, I think I was probably in the like seventh grade. Maybe it had my heart broken for the first time and just was like really feeling yeah. Joe yeah. Cocker, you know, and his emotional growl. So, yeah. <laughs> did you start writing or thinking about being a musician back then? No, not at all. I mean, I, I learned to play guitar. But that was really just again, like, grew up kind of church music, and so youth group always needed like people to play, and so I learned how to play and was up there, you know, leading songs. But I didn't, I didn't really even think about music as like a career until way later, like probably my junior year of college, and that's when I started writing songs. I did like a study abroad thing in Scotland. And uh, in between those eras, though, in high school, I I had a brother that passed away young. And so music was kind of the thing that kind of got me through that, helped me make sense of that. And so that's when the first, like, the idea of, like, maybe I could write songs and make people feel better, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Uh, So that was a big, that was kind of the big turning point for me when I went from just, like, oh, I just kind of play guitar at youth group to, like, and, and honestly, too, like in that same era, because of his passing, like I was sort of having a little bit of like my first sort of pushback against like that sort of culture of, you know, not to like speak ill of it, but I was like this, I'm not finding all my answers that I need in this tragedy from, you know, these sort of traditional answers. And so music was really a place where I was finding a lot of solace and comfort. So that's when I started paying attention to music on a, on a deeper level. I've read about that, and, and I'm sorry to hear about the brother passing away. Like, oh, thank you. So young. Was that actual event kind of a catalyst for, for writing for you? Or, or was it more like you, you started to identify more with music? I started to identify more with music, but then my, my junior year, I started uh, the, the program I was in at UT. I had to write a senior thesis. And so I was a history major, and I decided to do an oral history about his life. So I interviewed all these people, like doctors and neighbors and friends, and just kind of talked because he passed away at you know age thirteen, and there were like two thousand people at his funeral, and it was just like sort of one of those like, man, what was so unique about this hmm. kid that you know? So so anyways, so I started writing this project, and in that project, I like dove back into that life and into the grief, and that's where I started writing songs. Because while I was working on that project, I just kind of needed a way to like sort of emotionally process what I was working on. That's where I started writing songs. That's intense. And I, I think it's 
probably not uncommon for musicians like you who really do try to express yourselves through music to have some kind of, you know, loss, tragedy, something that kind of catalyzes that. Were there other artists that you were identifying with as you were going through that who who kind of did what you wanted to do or or that you wanted to emulate? Well, I remember after I'd already started making music, I, you know, I I watched both Walk the Line and the Ray Charles movie around the same time. And, you know, both of them sort Mm -hmm. of had this catalyzing moment in their youth where they lost a sibling. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that's like a common <laughs> theme of like musicians experience loss. They find like meaning in music. That was a little later. Obviously, I'd already been making music for a while at that point. But I think in the early era of college, I was listening to a lot of David Gray and Patty Griffin, Dylan. I was like doing deep dive, you know, stuff on Dylan. And so I know that you did an interesting project on Bruce Springsteen. Was that college so I'd already been touring and writing for like three years. And, and to be honest, it wasn't going very well. Like I was having a hard time making ends meet. And so I'd already, I knew I'd always wanted to go to, to graduate school. My original plan when I was in college was to become like a history professor. Okay. And so uh, I just loved it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I found out that St. Andrews over in Scotland had this sort of distance program where you could go for a week twice a year and then do like all your writing and essays and stuff from home or from the road for me. So I decided to do that, and um, yeah, so got a master's in uh, in theology while I was touring and all that kind of stuff, and ended up writing my my thesis on Springsteen and sort of the sort of redemptive imagination in his in his work. You know, there's like all this Catholic imagery all throughout his work, and then this sort of like black church call and response of his live show, and mm-hmm. then sort of like Protestant work ethic of like American working class man, you know. Yeah. So it's sort of like dove into all that. It's so interesting because like in American academia, there's like all these, so many of these academics are like super fans of music. And so there's like symposiums about Mm -hmm. like Dylan and symposiums about, you know, Appalachian folk music. So there's all these like sociologists and theologians and anthropologists and historians that love to write about musicians as well. So unearthed all that was pretty fun and, and super nerdy. That's cool. And I know that, like, based on your upbringing, you mentioned the church a few times. And, you know, there's so many people I know going to Springsteen shows or the dead or fish or whoever. And that's like, that's church for them. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of overlap. Yeah, for sure. It's like a communal gathering of people trying to sort of like experience transcendence, you know, and and escape from the doldrums of everyday life. And uh, rock and roll is definitely that. I mean, it's so interesting how many of the like great, artists sort of learned their trade singing and playing in church bands when they were kids. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Kings of Leon. Have you seen that documentary, you know, about yeah. the Pentecostal church? Yeah. There's so many. I mean, I feel like more often than not, there's that connection. Yeah. Every brother's dad's a preacher. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a big part of music. And I know that even people who didn't grow up in hugely religious families, sometimes that's just the first place you really hear People Music. doing a live performance, right? Singing and, and playing instruments if you're lucky, um, which is which is kind of amazing. Yeah, no doubt. So you were you were making music and, and you said it it was kind of like not going well. At, w- at what point did it start to kind of click for you or, or what changed that pushed you toward where you are now in terms of those initial steps? Yeah, it was sort of a like crossroads of a, of a handful of things. I mean, I, I'd been doing it for like maybe five years and it, and it wasn't like, oh my gosh, we're living in a car, but it was like, and we can't really sustain life like this because we're doing 200 shows a year and, you know, just like always in the car and staying in Super 8s and, <laughs> you know, just like missing out on all the normal parts of life. And so around that time, I wrote a song one night about my nieces and nephews. They were my sister and her husband lived in Nashville and then they decided to move to Central America. 
Mm. Kind of a long story, but I, I got real kind of overwhelmed with melancholy about seeing my nieces and nephews move away. They were really young, five, three, and one. Yeah, so I decided to write a song about it that night and wrote it. It was like one of those songs just came to me in like 15 minutes, a song called Live Forever. And we released it like a month later, and it just kind of took off. Like all of a sudden, our numbers at our shows were up like 40, 50%. People mm. were just like yelling, sing Live Forever. <laughs> you know, like just experiencing things that we had not experienced before. And then that song got picked up by NBC's Parenthood season mm-hmm. one, like mm-hmm. finale. Just kind of like took off. And then we started getting asked to go on tour with other bands that were bigger than us. And they started sharing their fans. This band called Need to Breathe took us on tour with them. And then, yeah, next thing you know, we're like, you know, in towns where we could only sell like 40 tickets after touring with them, we could come back and sell like 150, 200 tickets. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you can actually pay for the hotel rooms and everybody walks home with a little cash in their pocket if you get <laughs> sell 200 tickets, but not if you're only selling 50. And, and that just started to sort of snowball. And that was all around like 2000. 11, 12. During that time, did you consider giving up on the career, like before that break? Yeah, so I was 27. It was 2009. At the end of my 28th year, I was like, now I can't afford to go back to school. I I was at that point like, maybe I should go to law school. I could get a job or something, Mm -hmm. doing doing that, something I love. The only way I could pay for it was through the military. So I was training to join the Marine Corps. Wow. While we were on tour, because I was like, it's my my backup plan. We're kind of running out of time. And that was around the same time that the song sort of caught fire. And uh, yeah, so it didn't do that. Here wow. <laughs> that's incredible. Crazy timing. And I mean, I assume that's partially luck and timing, but also just kind of sticking with it and continuing to do what you do. Because so many bands have gone through what you're describing, right? Where you just yeah, keep going. Yeah, most bands don't make it. It's, I mean, everybody, I had this guy that day was like, well, you made it because you worked so hard. No, 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 no. I'm like, look, proud of myself. We worked hard, but we also just got really lucky. You have to have some breaks you have to have some band hear your song that likes you that decides to take you on the road or some radio programmer that decides like man i believe in this band and they become a big deal like like ho hey with the lumineers like the radio this radio people were like this song we're just going to take it to the top yeah we didn't ever have like a that one break but we had just like a lot of small breaks that just sort of made the difference and you know and in the meantime we just kept working really hard on making as good a record as we could. And that's, that's where we did sort of put in the time was we just made a lot of records. I guess I want to talk a little bit about your style because curious kind of growing up in Tennessee and having being around Nashville and Memphis sort of two different music scenes but you have the an approach that I think you've described as like you know singer troubadour in your shows kind of reflect that it, it feels a little bit like a revival in some ways and, and a little bit like a concert I mean were you consciously trying to kind of bridge all those different experiences and influences that you had I never like sat down and was like, I want to be like a singer songwriter, but it's more like communal. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there were a few things that I definitely knew I wanted to do pretty early on. And one was write my own material. You know, I always saw myself more as a songwriter than I did as a singer. That's changed over the years. I definitely see myself as a singer now. But, and then I really wanted to like make my records with my band and not hire studio players. That was like, a Memphis piece that I took with me to Nashville and all the Nashville producers were like, Oh gosh, we don't want to do that. We won't use our people. And we're like, no, this is, this is a band. That's why we're mm-hmm, the neighbors. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so, and there, I think the influence thing just sort of like, just kind of happens. Like you, you know, when you're in the middle of a writing season, you listen to a lot of Van Morrison, you like a song, like another man's shoes can kind of just happen. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you're just thinking about like sort of these just like 
groove songs that sort of float and the other times you find yourself listening to a lot of whoever and then that seeps into your music and then sometimes just like lightning strikes and you're just like bam the song happens and you're like i don't really know where that came from but really proud of it <laughs> and the other songs you work on for like five years and after five years it's finally like ah oh, finally finally nailed this song i knew there was something <laughs> here i've been cannibalizing it for years trying to figure it out yeah i think i read that nothing but trouble took six years or so yeah five or six years yeah yeah i love that song but it was literally one like i knew the components were there i just couldn't find Mm -hmm. the right thing do you have like a particular approach for songwriting like do you have a routine or a time or or do you like just wait for it to strike you i I used to sort of be more of a wait for it to strike you type person and, and artist but i have three children and so i have to like block off time and space to write now or else it's just like too many distractions things just don't work out that way i like to write in the kitchen it's like the loudest most sort of like reverby space in the Mm -hmm. house you know Mm -hmm. tall ceilings hard surfaces you know like mccartney always talks about he used when he was a kid he used to write in the bathroom because of all the hard surfaces Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. i sounded so good to myself so (laughs) but yeah i don't really have like a, a real routine with it i mean i sometimes i write mostly write by myself. Sometimes I write with friends. If I write with friends, I usually have to schedule it. It's, it's kind of like that wait for inspiration to happen, but then also like work hard and always be writing so that you're like ready for it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it seems like you have to do. And I, I as an aside, my business partner in this company is Tom Marshall, who's the lyricist for the band Fish. And, you know, oh, he's cool. written, he's written most of the lyrics to most of their songs and hearing him tell stories about like waking up in the middle of the night and like having to run to the bathroom and turn on the light and write down a song. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, yes. it's, just, it's amazing how that kind of stuff happens. And then some of it is like a piece from here from five years ago and a piece from here that I just came up with and you put them together. You know, I mean, it seems stressful to me, but maybe when you're used to it, you just you get used to it. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember what song it was. I don't think it's one that actually made a record. But I remember the, the weirdest thing that I heard of me is I had a dream that I had written like a verse chorus and I woke up and I still remembered it. Wow. I like ran downstairs and wrote it down, went back to sleep and woke up and and forgot it. I had forgotten about it. And I wow. saw, saw it on my desk and I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I totally <laughs> did this last night. <laughs> That's amazing. So the parenthood thing happens and then things sort of took off. And is that when you made your first record or had you already made No, that we had first already one? made, that was our, we had already made three full records. At three that full point. records. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So the wow. one that came out of that was an album called Chasing Someday that was 2011. And that was sort of our first like first record where we like we signed a deal with dual tone records we had like a publicist and we finally had a booking agent you know all the we had our big boy pants on for the first time and <laughs> for the previous you know six or seven years i had done all that myself so yeah so you're so you're making making albums between yeah 05 and and 2011 basically and and then things start to change and, and i know that that album yeah. reached on it was on the charts especially on the on the folk charts and did that change things for you in the way you were approaching either the shows or, or the music, or did you just try to like stay focused on what you were doing? Yeah, for the first time in years, we were starting to get asked to play at things instead of asking to play at things. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that was a great that was a great change. Now it wasn't always that way, you know. But I think in on that record cycle, I think it was that record cycle we got to play Bonnaroo. It may have been it was two thousand thirteen, which was on that same cycle, maybe right at the beginning of the next one, but you know, we, yeah, we started doing like real tours, playing real venues, not just like bars with stages. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and at that point, we were only really playing real venues before that in like seven cities. 
and my band was always having to take other work because we weren't working enough. So that was the first time it really felt like, oh, this is actually like, it's really going to happen. So that was, that was kind of the major shift in that season. That is the only album that you've made like on another label, right? Yeah. I mean, the last record we did with Dragons, we distributed and did a, did a deal with 30 Tigers, but it's still our imprint. But Dual Tone was the only one we've ever done really on a label. Yeah. And what's that experience been like? Is it like another business to run? I mean, is that how you see it or is it kind of more integrated into the music? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, that's one thing nobody tells you when you start, when you're like, I want to be an artist. You know, it's like, okay, cool. Did you know you're starting a small business? <laughs> you know, did you know you're going to have to like send tax forms to all your bandmates? Did you know you're going to have to get workers' comp insurance for festivals <laughs> and they're going to require you to have general liability insurance and that, you know, you're going to have to like hire a business manager and, Think about salary and all. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. none of that stuff is told to you when you're like, when you go see your favorite band in college and they're up there rocking out and the girls are going crazy and you're like, (laughs) man, this is like, this is awesome. You didn't know that that guy was on the phone earlier this morning trying to figure out his quarterly tax payments with his attorney, you know? <laughs> yeah, or, or not, and then ending up losing everything. Right, because they right, just, like, exactly. Don't yeah, pay attention. Some horror stories that you hear. You know, but I've actually found that I kind of enjoyed that part of it. It's not all enjoy every part of it, but I do enjoy the business side of it probably more than most artists do. But it still doesn't. It's funny how it's still like it's like a totally separate part of my brain. It doesn't really affect the creative side. And people have tried to make it affect the creative side. Like, oh, man, if you did this, you could make X amount of money. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, but then I wouldn't be doing what I want to do with mm-hmm. my music. And that's not the point, you know. So I've still always tried to let creative drive creative and not let commerce drive creative that's awesome and and also really kind of hard to do right i mean that's it is hard to do but for me the creative led to commerce like Mm. doing it the right way from the beginning slowly but surely always paid off Mm -hmm. you know even though it was slow at first once it started to happen it was like every time i've never regretted turning down some commercial opportunity that felt like it wasn't honest to who i am creatively and vice versa i've always been glad of the decisions I've made creatively kind of let the chips fall but Mm -hmm. it's not like the mentality to have everybody's different but that's been my mentality and it's served our work well so after that came out you've put out a bunch of records since then and they've all been well received it sounds like since then you've kind of just been on this ride of continuing to gain momentum is that is that kind of how it's played out for you it did play out like that for multiple records um for good light definitely medicine was our biggest record up to that point but there were like shifts in the industry that happened kind of around 2017 I got really, really sick, was in the hospital with meningitis, spent 10 days in the hospital right before Souvenir came out. And that was also like two years before that, iTunes was still like really bumping. Mm -hmm. And that's how we would pay for like the record and the marketing was through this big first quarter of actual sales. And that's like by the time Souvenir came around, you know, like for instance, I don't know what the numbers are, but like let's say I think Medicine, the first week we sold like 10,000 copies, like actual sold copies Mm -hmm. of the record on iTunes or physical I think Souvenir, the consumption was the same, but like 80% of that consumption had moved to streaming where there was basically no quick revenue. It's all long re- long revenue. So all of a sudden, like I've been sick, had meningitis, put the record out, and we, and we were basically broke. And for whatever reason, that record didn't connect quite like the others had also. And our touring was down. Like some places it was flat, mm-hmm. but it was down like 20% most everywhere. 
but we had like built the tour expecting growth. And so I was losing money on the record. I was losing money on the tour and I was still sick. Yeah. So that was like the hardest year of my professional life. And we got through it and, and that record, thankfully sort of, it was one of those albums that sort of took a minute to sort of catch Mm on. People do seem to love it now, you know, but it, it was not the record at first that had all these like catches on. And, and, and I've got older friends like, Country singer Vince Gill is a, is a pretty good friend of mine, and and I was telling him about it a couple of years ago, and he's like, "Oh yeah, man, some of my favorite records that I made, nobody liked, and I just just gotta go make another one." You know, just like real matter of fact, and yeah. try, you know. Like, all right. Meanwhile, I'm like, like, oh man, is yeah. my career my over? over? I can't. It's everything's going wrong. And he's like, no, nah, man, just, just gotta make another one. And that's when I like did this collaborative thing, which I'd never done before, which was a major like creative shift for me. Mm. And that again was a, was a not a planned thing. I was having lunch with a friend of mine, Abner Ramirez from Johnny Swim. And uh, we got together to talk about doing a tour together. And so we're talking about the tour and it's, it's he and I, and my manager and his manager. And we're just sort of talking through the like logistics of a tour. And he's in town filming some music video at the exit Inn, and he's like giving away tickets all over town. So he's on his Instagram mm-hmm. and he's like, Hey, you know, I'm here with my friend Drew with the so-and-so I'm giving away 10 tickets. First 10 people will find me in the restaurant. Which of course, like, made total chaos. Like all these people run yeah. the restaurant, but everybody was like, "You got every single person that came up was like, oh my gosh, y'all know each other. Y'all should tour together.'" And uh, we're like, "Okay, cool." Mm-hmm. And uh, then he said something about, "Well, maybe we should write together and see what happens." And so I went out to L.A. where they live, and it was like a Wednesday, and that Thursday was the Charlottesville white supremacy rally, and Abner's Cuban, his wife's African American, Amanda, and. Man, we just like we were just gonna write about whatever, and then we that happened, and we were like, no, we're gonna write about this, and we, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of back to some of the stuff in the beginning, like we sort of wrote some songs to like people, especially religious persuasion, who sort of like tolerate that kind of stuff, and just like basically telling them like, you know, you can take that straight to hell, you know, and this song just like blew up, and we recorded it two days after Tom Petty died. So we put won't back down on there and it, it blew up and did really well. And so we decided to do a tour and that really kind of gave me like new creative energy. So meanwhile, I started writing like all these new songs and then ended up making what I think is my best record dragons. And, and just according to the sort of data, again, I do like the business part of it. The data would tell you that dragons is definitely our most popular yeah. record. And so you go from like the lowest point in your career and you figure out ways to like sort of just keep saying yes to, to new things and trying new things while also maintaining your sort of compass internally and then do make your best work. So who knows, man, you just got to like ride it out. This was sort of look yeah. at that souvenir moment and kind of look back on it and weirdly grateful for it. I don't talk to that many artists who enjoy both the super creative side and the business side. I feel like some people would say it's like not part of the art or whatever, but it's not bad to see it as yeah. as part of the same deal. Well, like my band guys and I've been playing music together for 15 years, some of us. And me taking the business part of it seriously allows us to do it for a long time. Hmm. allows us to like have families and do it and not be like, oh, well, bummer. We didn't do it the right way and now we don't have any money. So everybody's got to go home now, go get a job. But at least we made good art. Yeah, at least we made good art. And, and because of that, we have time to make good art because we're not having to do other stuff. Yeah. Obviously, I think there's a way there are lots of artists who are singers and whatever who they do it only because they want to be famous. You know, I, yeah, that's never been our motivation. I mean, it's nice to have people there to sing along with you. 
<laughs> but, yeah. And I've noticed from your live albums, uh, you know, and the live stuff you've done, that that is definitely a component of what you do, which is awesome. Yeah, I learned that from Springsteen for sure. So you're basically recovering from meningitis. The album's not doing well. It sounds like not as many people are showing up to the concerts when you're touring. How do you get up there and play? How do you overcome all that and like, put on a good show? Two things for me you helped me. Like, oh my gosh, you only sold 600 tickets this time. You sold 700 last time. It's like, okay, revert to yourself eight years ago when you were selling 80 tickets. Let's get some perspective here. And then just kind of remember like, hey, these people are here. Let's have a good time. Let's yeah, let's deliver a show. But I'll be honest, I'd be a liar if I didn't say there weren't nights where you're like, man, this is this one's tough. And sometimes yeah. that has nothing to do with the amount of people that are there. It's like the way the audience is reacting. And if they're all just like, cool, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really hard to like. For me, I always want to like get inside the song live and like really communicate as best I can, like whatever the emotional weight of the song is, whether it's fun or whether it's like super intense. You want to kind of like deliver that and not be on cruise control. But it's nice to have cruise control sometimes when you're in a show where the audience is just like not there with you. Mm -hmm. And that's when you can kind of go, well, it's all right. Cruise control is still pretty good. you know. Like, yeah, just play music. I want to ask about this first track on the Dragons album, Family. I wanted to talk about your family a little bit because we haven't talked yet about your wife, who I know was in your band yeah. and then, you know, and then was not. And also you guys, obviously, you mentioned you have three kids. It seems like family is a big theme for you, starting with that big family you talked about at the beginning. What does that kind of idea mean to you now? And, and how has that helped you musically over the years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for me, well, again, I, I'm one of 28 grandkids on my mom's side, one of 12 grandkids on my, not 12, see, one, two, three, four. Yeah, 12 uh, or 11 grandkids on, on my dad's side. So just grew up around a lot of family, you know, grew up down the street from my grandfather and grandmother and great grandmother who lived with them, who lived to be 99. So just a lot of the like periphery reality of my life was just surrounded by a lot of blood. You know, my grandmother took care of us a bunch. My brother had special needs. So my, we need a lot of help, which is why we moved down the street from them. Uh, my grandfather loved to take me fishing and, and hunting and he played golf and go to the little city course and teach me how to play golf. And, you know, it's just like a lot of blood on blood. So I sort of carried that idea with me that like, we also had the sort of open house mentality. Like my parents' house was always like, there's always somebody over whether it's mm -hmm. neighbors or friends or they kept in touch with people. Every time we go on vacation, dad would be like, Oh, we're on the way to Dallas. We got to stop in Fort Smith and see so-and-so who was in my fraternity back in the day and haven't seen him in 20 years. We're going to catch up. You know, we're all like, Oh my gosh, can we please just go to the six flags, you know? <laughs> um, so the idea that like everybody's connected and that's like good and also sort of chaotic and oftentimes messy it's just a big part of my life. And Ellie, my wife, is the oldest of five kids. So that was definitely her experience as well. And I've always seen my bandmates, like they're basically like brothers, you know. I mean, we've been on mm -hmm. stage together 15, 1800 times. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Nathan, my guitar player, I'm his daughter's godfather, you know, just like we're just really close. Mm -hmm. And I also see that interaction with, with our fan base, like, you know, sort of not quite as three dimensional, but it's still, our, they're still a part of the family, you know greater neighbor mm -hmm. family especially in a world that's so freaking divided and like i feel like the more ways we can find things to bind us together shared interests shared feelings even shared fears about the future shared experiences of grief like these things that are in my songs i want those to be things that, that bring us together in a 
world where it feels like that's impossible. So it sounds a little melodramatic, but I feel like life is pretty melodramatic these days. Yeah. Well, it's also like you could take the cynical view that like, yeah, sure, your fans are like part of your family, but really it's like, yeah. you know, that's a, I think a cynical way to look at it is like, that's just like a cliche, but it, it seems like it resonates for you as an artist, which I think is really all that matters, right? And it seems like right. it resonates with your fans as well. Yeah, it does seem, that seems to be the case. Uh, who knows if like we stop touring and stop releasing music, I'm sure that's, it'll, it, it could, you know, I don't want to hold their feet to the fire and say, <laughs> you're my cousin, don't abandon me, you know? <laughs> uh, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I feel like while there's a, obviously some sort of, exchange happening we make music they come to shows you know there's certainly like a transactional nature to that but it's also i think this goes back to the art part it's like when you as an artist give up something of yourself and you put a piece of your you know sort of put your pound of flesh on the record people resonate with that yeah that's where the communal bind that happens in music happens it's like like when i listen to a wilco record i feel like they like are giving away a piece of themselves. That's why it's, it's magical. It's taking this years of hard work, but also like some creative spark that they can't explain and I can't explain, but, but we get to like share it together and be in a room. And, and so that's what's special about music. And I, I hope, hope to not ever sort of be cynical about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And on the live experience side, like we've talked about Springsteen, I mean, you know, if you, you go see a Springsteen show, you know, he's not leaving anything unsaid, you know, he's, and, and any, any good concert, I think you, you feel like the artist has given you some of their time and also left, left everything they have out there, you know, which yeah. is just as a music fan, it's, it's the best feeling you yeah. know, to walk away from a show and be like, we and the band were in it together. Totally. You know? Yeah. That's the magic. I know your wife has a musical background as well. And I'm curious, just if you don't mind sharing, like how you guys have approached music with your kids. Yeah. I mean, obviously like their experience is very different because they've spent, I mean, our daughter's seven and she's probably spent a hundred nights on a tour bus. You know, we have instruments laying around the house and they mm -hmm. can play with them if they want. And no one's taken quite like a, a I mean, again, they're only eight, five and two, but, um, you know, we're not going to pressure them into it, but my daughter, it's amazing. Her favorite thing right now is like, she loves Hamilton and she bought the lyric book and she's basically like teaching herself how to read by like mm -hmm. memorizing the entire soundtrack to Hamilton. And so she's like, what does this word mean? What does this word mean? Every once in a while you're like, yeah, ah, you're not supposed to know that word. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But her like capacity for remembering lyrics is unlike anything I've ever seen. And so, you know, you just never know who your kids are like you know you do your best to sort of just like give them like a place to grow and like kind of keep them from getting hurt and you know but you just hope that they sort of find the things that they love and, and are good at and, and and find ways to express themselves through those without pressuring them i do think that the main thing we do is we, just, we play music a lot and the best story ever we got to tour with willie nelson and we decided to take the kids because we're like, this is once in a lifetime. We're going to be on the road with Willie Dawson for two weeks. And so she's four and a half, five at the time. She's five at the time. And uh, playing Willie every day just to kind of get them familiar with all of his stuff. And two days before the tour, she pulls me aside and she goes, Dad, I really want to start the tour. And I was like, yeah, Amy Lou, it's going to be great. Me too. And she goes, I've waited my whole life to meet Willie Nelson. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> and, and I'm 35, you know, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. but like, so their perspective is really, you know, unique. So the last night of that tour, 
we let her stay up late for his set and uh I, he would he would invite me to come up and sing i saw the light and will the circle mm-hmm. be unbroken and then he sings on the road again the band plays he shakes hands at the front signs some stuff and then gets in his bus on his way from the stage to the bus he stops sees ellie holding emmy lou gives her a kiss on the cheek grabs her face and says good night princess and gets on no his way. bus and that's the last time we saw willie wow and i'm like man Amazing. What a memory for her, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's things that's that like incredible. 99.9999% of children never get to experience anything like that. Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that story. What have you been doing since the pandemic started are, are you are you glad to be home and off the road uh, how you've been spending your time what are your reflections on this time yeah it's a really weird ping pong for me between the devastation and despair of like losing your livelihood and we had just a great year of festivals and touring we were going to go to europe for three weeks and tour and all sorts of great fun things that we were going to do as a band and, and and as a family and so that's like the one side of the the ping and then the pong is like, oh, well, I've, I've been gone for 15 years all the time. <laughs> and now I'm here and I get to be with my friends. And I mean, obviously, at the beginning, we didn't get to be with our friends. It was just us here at the house. But yeah, I think there's a lot to be grateful for. Learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about music. We did this thing called Kitchen Covers, where we basically did a cover song every night for the first 45 days of Safer at Home quarantine. I was learning songs that I never would have learned. And it's been great to like learn Anything from like Simon Garfunkel's America to Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now to Beyonce's Crazy in Love to, Mm. you know, so I've just sort of expanded my musical palette in that way. I've I've started writing a little bit. Got a song that I really love that's sort of related to just the moment that we're in called I Need to Go Somewhere that uh, I'm going to probably release in the spring. You know, definitely, you know, just a lot of adapting and, and then also taking the time to sort of enjoy forced time here so yeah, yeah. It's, been, it's been good and bad i think that's probably yeah. true for everybody yeah that's kind of yeah exactly so we've talked a lot and i appreciate you taking the time you've been through like a lot of growth and a lot of momentum you talked about the downturn that you had and, and you've recovered and making more music putting out more music if you were to like talk to yourself of 20 years ago what kind of advice would you give yourself <laughs> man like on the one hand i'm like i would give myself so much advice on the other hand, all of the sort of parts of the journey have been important. I think like one practical thing, I, like my first EP, I basically was like, these are my first five songs. I'm going to record them and release them. And it sort of hampered, I think, the opportunities for me at the beginning because I put out a pretty subpar thing, you know, hmm. at the beginning. And I wish that I had spent more time on the craft. So if I could go back, I would tell my 21-year-old self, like, hey, man, take another year, write more songs, pick the best ones. You know, super practical thing, but I think, yeah. it, I think it really would have changed the whole sort of early four or five years of, of my career. Would you have not done the songs you did or would you just spent more time like making them better? I bet maybe one or two of them might have stayed in the in the running, but no, mm-hmm. most of them would have been where they are now, which is on the trash heap of musical history. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really fun and thank you for, for taking taking the time to chat. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. And now here's Drew Holcomb playing American Beauty, Family, and Dragons.
Play an older song now. This is a uh, song off of a record called Medicine. Uh, it's a song called American Beauty. And it goes like this. family. I have uh, uh, 28 cousins, first cousins. This is a song I wrote on my last record. The record's called Dragons. The song's about uh, just sort of the chaos and good and the bad of, you know, families and stuff. Everybody knows what that's like. Uh, it goes like this.
ten dollars Family like a photograph Family baptized in the water Family put me on the map Family all in this together Family did take any chance Family like birds of a feather This is the uh, title track of my latest record. The album's called Dragons, so the song is called Dragons. It's a simple song. It's a, it's a dream narrative of the time I hung out with a ghost of my grandfather. In a dream, of course. It's called Dragons. Y'all take care. Climbing a mountain, sleeping the moonlight. The ghost of my grandpa came to me in a dream. As the stars hung above us, he started singing his chorus. He laughed loud as heaven and said this to me Take a few chances, you worthy romances. Go swimming in. up and talked until the sunrise a war and love and sorrow he said stop spending all your money on forgiveness of sins today is all you promised no trouble with tomorrow he faded into the forest proudly singing this hymn take a few chances you worthy romances go swimming in by lightning all my windows are open and I let the rain flood in the past felt like the present the future uncertain I sang like a sparrow lost in
you very much. See you soon. Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 